Hey, welcome AJT readers. This is Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center uh, here with the March AJT podcast. I'm joined today by my colleague, Carol Kao. She is an assistant professor in pediatric infectious diseases from Washington University in St. Louis. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Unfortunately, Josh couldn't join us today, but I know us two women will be very lively. And I'm going to walk the readers through our lineup. Um, our first paper today will be pediatric heart transplant waiting times in the U.S. since the 2016 allocation policy change by Williams et al. Our second paper, in a little bit different direction, will be Hope in Action, a prospective multi-center pilot study of liver transplant from donors with HIV to recipients with HIV by Durand and colleagues. And then we'll finish up with two papers, the negative impact of T-cell-mediated rejection on renal allograft survival in the modern era by Rampersad and colleagues, and then the effectiveness of T-cell-mediated rejection therapy, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Ho et al. If Josh can join us later, he'll talk about survival following liver transplant for locally advanced, unresectable intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. But if he can't, I'd recommend that those of you who are into liver, like Josh, that you please uh, follow up that paper by Macmillan et al. So, Kara, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about the impact of allocation changes in pediatric hearts? All right. Thanks, Roz. And thanks so much for having me. Um, it's such an honor to be part of the AJT podcast family. So um, Williams and all describe the current wait times for pediatric heart transplant candidates in the United States after a 2016 revision to the organ allocation policy. The primary goal of the policy's existence is to be able to allocate donor hearts to those with the most urgent need but also takes into account the blood type and the distance between the donor and the recipient hospitals. The changes that were enacted in 2016 resulted in reducing priority for children with cardiomyopathy, removed in utero listing mechanisms, and also required hospital admission for candidates with significant congenital heart disease to qualify for status 1A listing. So the authors utilized the OPTN database to obtain UNO's listing status, demographic and clinical characteristics, geographic information and waitlist outcomes on pediatric heart transplant candidates that were listed between July 1st, 2016 and April 1st, 2019. And associations between predictors and waitlist outcomes were assessed using a hazards regression model. So what they found was um, that a among approximately 1,800 pediatric heart transplant candidates, 65% underwent heart transplantation successfully, 14% died or were removed due to clinical deterioration, 8% were removed for other reasons, and 13% were still waiting heart transplant at time of the study completion. 82% of the candidates were transplanted while status 1A with a median time of 71 days. 16% were transplanted in status 1B with a median wait time of 246 days. Status 1A candidates who had a non-O blood type and also weighed more than 25 kilos had the shortest wait times with a median of 24 days compared to candidates with an O blood type weighing less than 25 kilos who had a median wait time of 108 days. 
However, this difference was minimized by 100 days after listing. Candidates who were more than 25 kilos and non-O blood type also had the highest transplant rates immediately after initial listing, and candidates weighing less than 25 kilos, the lowest. Centers were also grouped based on their pediatric heart donor assessment tool score. So they were grouped into either being highly selective, intermediate, or less selective. And not surprisingly, those centers that were deemed highly selective had longer wait times compared to those that were less or intermediately selective. And then finally, the authors looked at whether the geographic region where the um, recipient lived affected um, the wait times. And they did find that centers in the southeast United States had longer status 1-8 wait times compared to other geographic regions, even after adjusting for weight. So overall, this data demonstrates that wait times for pediatric heart transplantation in the United States is highly variable, and it's most dependent on the recipient's size, blood type, and listing status, but can also be impacted by an individual center's donor acceptance selectivity and geographic region of residence. So status 1A candidates who weighed more had highest transplant rates immediately after listing, and those that weighed less than 25 kilos had the lowest transplant rates after listing, and their peak wasn't until 100 to 180 days of 1A wait time. And not surprisingly, this also correlated with a higher waitlist mortality of 20% in this subgroup. So altogether, these findings indicate that the current policy seems to be working in matching kids weighing more than 25 kilos with the highest medical needs to appropriate heart donors. But perhaps this policy may not be adequately serving kids less than 25 kilos, particularly if they also have blood uh, type O blood type or live in certain geographic regions. The authors then propose other ways to address this disparity, either by reconsidering prioritization of this subgroup or by expanding the donor supply. So could this problem be addressed by expanding allocation circles or encouraging centers who have highly selective acceptance criteria to broaden those criteria? So some prior studies have shown that low acceptance rate centers experience higher wait times without significant post-transplant survival benefits, although this must be a delicate balance since centers with high acceptance rates may also have higher post-transplant graft failure. Altogether, you know, I think these findings are helpful to transplant teams in planning how much heart failure support should be anticipated and when counseling families on the expected course prior to transplantation. So, for example, knowing that the median wait time for a status 1A child who is more than 25 kilos and non-O blood type is 24 days, with 75% of those receiving a heart by two months, perhaps these candidates can be bridged to transplantation without um, a ventricular assist device placement, which in itself may cause complications resulting in prolonged hospital stays. So although this was a retrospective registry-based study that was conducted pre-COVID era, which has impacted transplant rates, the data is still a helpful tool for transplant teams to use to talk to families and also when deciding on appropriate therapies. Well, Carol, great job, considering that neither you nor I are 
heart transplant folks, much less pediatric heart transplant folks. Um, I think you did a great job summarizing it. I don't. I didn't read the paper in depth like you did. Did was there any consideration of expanding these statuses? You know, one A, one B. I mean, is it time to drill down and have subcategories of? That's one question I had. And then the second is it's interesting to me about the continued um, impact of center-specific practices. And did the authors discuss a little bit about was this concern about metrics and their outcomes in that way? And that's why they were being more cautious. No, those are uh, really great points for us that you bring up. Um, and I think there is some suggestion that yes, perhaps how these kids are categorized should be reconsidered knowing that there are certain subgroups that may not fit perfectly into those. Um, the authors also bring up the use of exception points um, and whether that may be utilized in certain situations, particularly for you know these kids less than 25 kilos who have types O blood um, and that are disproportionately have uh, been impacted by wait times. Um, and then in terms of the second part of your question, whether certain centers are more selective because of concern of their metrics, you know, the authors don't specifically address that, but I think that is probably a reasonable assumption uh, mm -hmm. to make. It always comes back to haunt us, I think, but well, great. Um, let's go on and hear your next paper, which is in a completely different organ system. Yes. So this paper, um, the authors address a very important question. So how do liver transplant outcomes compare between donors with HIV and donors without HIV to recipients with HIV? So end-stage liver disease remains a leading cause of death among people living with HIV. They have a greater risk of death while on the transplant waiting list and also lower access to these life-saving organs. So under the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act or the HOPE Act that was passed in 2013, transplantation of organs from donors with HIV to recipients with HIV can be performed, but only under research protocols. And there exists very limited data on the long-term outcomes of liver transplantation. So this was a prospective multi-center study uh, comparing safety and outcomes of liver transplantation between donors with HIV to recipients with HIV to donors without HIV to recipients with HIV. So these candidates had to meet certain institutional criteria for liver transplantation and also HOPE Act research criteria, which included a CD4 count above 100 within 16 weeks of transplants. They had to be on ART therapy with an HIV RNA less than 50 copies. And patients with active opportunistic infections, a history of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or CNS lymphoma were also excluded. The donors were screened for active opportunistic infections, cancer, HIV per OPTN policy, and HHV8 by detection of antibodies, and recipient and donor characteristics, virologic and immunologic measures were recorded and outcomes were followed. So all participants did receive post-transplant prophylaxis for pneumocystis gervecki, but the CMV prophylaxis varied based on each center's specific protocols. 
a quantitative HIV PCR was performed at baseline at weeks 1, 2, 3, 4, 13, 26, then every six months post-transplant and CD4 counts were also checked at regular intervals. Um, Long-term outcomes the authors looked at included patient survival, graft survival, rejection, serious adverse events, HIV breakthrough, infectious complications, and the development of malignancies post-transplant. And there was inverse probability of treatment weighting of recipients' age, hepatitis C, viremia, MELT scores, and combined liver and kidney transplants to ensure balance of these factors between the two groups. And all participants were followed until death, study removal, or administrative censorship. So the study in total included 45 liver transplant recipients, including eight combined liver kidney transplants with a median follow-up time of 23 months. The most common indication for transplant was hepatitis C in 56%, followed by hepatocellular carcinoma, hepatitis B, and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And you can find additional recipient characteristics in table one of the paper, but all recipients were on ART. They had a median CD4 count of 287. 98% had HIV RNA, less than 200 copies at time of transplant. Donor characteristics can be found on table two in the paper, um, but amongst the 45 donors, 24 were living with HIV with a median CD4 count of 329. None of them had active infections or cancer, and amongst those with a prior diagnosis of HIV, 89% were on ART with low HIV copies at time of transplant. So what the authors found was that overall, there were no differences in one-year graft survival, rejection, HIV breakthrough, or serious adverse events between the two groups. Recipients of livers from donors living with HIV, however, did have more opportunistic infections, infectious hospitalizations, and post-transplant cancers. So there were eight total deaths, eight, six in donor positive and two in donor negative recipients. So the weighted one-year survival was 83% for donor positive and 100% for donor negative recipients. So in other words, donor positive recipients had a 6.6-fold higher mortality risk compared to donor negative recipients. Post-transplant cancers occurred in six donor positive and two donor negative recipients, and this resulted in four deaths. These cancers included Kaposi sarcoma of the skin, liver, and lungs, and one episode of an HHV8-related large B-cell lymphoma. Donor-positive recipients thus have a 7.3 increased risk of post-transplant cancer compared to donor-negative recipients. Infections that required hospitalization occurred in 36% of donor-positive and 25% of donor-negative recipients. Opportunistic infections occurred in 25% of donor positive and 14% of donor negative. And these included nine episodes of CMV in seven recipients, five of which were donor positive. And of those recipients, all but one were CMV donor positive recipient negative. So at baseline, they were already at higher risk. 
And then in weighted analysis, the incidence of infectious hospitalizations on opportunistic infections were higher in the donor positive compared to donor negative recipients. So altogether, there was a higher rate of infections and cancers in the donor positive group, which then contributed to higher mortality as well. However, the overall one-year survival was higher than what has previously been reported in this population. And in particular, combined liver kidney transplants in people living with HIV historically has been reported to have worse outcomes such that some centers don't even offer this as an option. So the authors attribute this success to improved HIV and hepatitis C treatment options um, in this day and age and advances in transplant care. And importantly, there was a very relatively low overall rate of rejection. Mm -hmm. HIV breakthrough was very uncommon. Transient viremia was due to ART non-adherence and was suppressed with the initiation of ART. And then in those nine cases of CMV viremia, they primarily occurred in CMV donor positive, negative, recipient negative recipients. And importantly, this was not associated with graft loss. So these findings are helpful in thinking about the risks of transplant in this population versus mortality on the wait list. The authors do note that this was a non-randomized pilot study with relatively small numbers. However, uh, they did have a donor negative control group in which they were able to do um, some great analyses and it was a multi-center design. So altogether, these findings are promising. Um, and as more of these transplants take place, um, they can provide further insight into maybe how we could better mitigate some of the infectious and cancer risks that um, seem to be higher in the HIV donor positive, recipient positive individuals. It's certainly interesting when you consider that, like the risks of like as an ID specialist, like hepatitis, you know, that that track with the donor organ as opposed to the recipient. And so I, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever looked at the liver to be sort of an inherent reservoir for, for, for HHV8 or not. Um, and I thought that these findings seemed a little bit more negative in terms of the adverse events than in the hope and action kidney pilot, where the kidney patients seemed to be like, okay. I mean, the big things there we were always worried about was rejection and, um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts or comments about it. I, I mean, I'm really astounded by by it, and I'm still trying to understand the mechanism. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that um, there were definitely some concerning findings, but again, you know, this was a relatively small study. Small study. You know, when you weigh that against the risk of dying on the wait list, um, I think for some people, these risks may be worth it. And, and in terms of the false positives that are coming back in terms of the HIV testing, was that an issue of, you know, okay, well, it was a few years ago and now we use different testing. Um, what can you tell the community? Because we're always talking about organ discards and the fear of that. Um, it just seems like a very high rate of false positive testing. It does. That also struck yeah. me most, mm -hmm. um, when I read that. Um, Although it, it seems like then on confirmatory testing, they were able to conclude that these were false positives. Okay. Just seems sort of odd, you know, in terms of our clinical practice. But um, again, I don't do donor calls, so I don't really hear a lot about 
things like that going on. But I was involved at my old institution in Hope Kidney, and I knew about Hope Liver, and we were involved in a CCR5 study in one of the, in the HIV recipients. So, Carol, great summaries. Um, we'll go and transition to something completely different. So thanks. I'm going to turn my attention to two papers about T-cell mediated rejection. And I know we don't talk about rejection anymore because T-cell mediated rejection, well, it's only eight to 10% of people. So I'm going to in, in, you know, I'm going to try to get the listeners to get super excited about rejection. This is a topic I've started talking about over the last year and a half to revitalize the community. Um, the first paper is by Christy Rappersand and colleagues at Peter Nickerson's group and, and Chris Weeb uh, in Manitoba. And it's called The Negative Impact of T-Cell Media Rejection on Renal Allograft Survival in the Modern Era. And again, as I've alluded to, rejection is considered maybe infrequent, 8 to 10% in the first year after transplant. Um, and, and because we see such great short-term outcomes, that incidence of rejection seems very distantly linked to late outcomes. In the olden days, high rejection rates were associated with poor graft outcomes. And we've really not had any new drugs developed because the primary endpoint of, of biopsy-proven rejection in patient and graft survival has really mitigated that. And so there is now a recruiting interest in, in TCMR. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that the BAMP classification, that is our pathology classification, has included a, an entity called borderline rejection. And the definition has changed and gone back to something that's a little maybe less conservative by some uh, ideas where mild tubulitis and any level of interstitial inflammation is included in the definition or any level of tubulitis with mild inflammation. So greater than or one equal to one I and T equals one or I equals one any grade of tubulitis. So that's one issue. The other is the surveillance biopsy issue that you know, there's numbers of cohorts now that have identified that about 30% of individuals will have inflammation in their biopsies. Um, many of those studies include uh, BAMP borderline as a cutoff and show that that's present. And so, and those studies have shown an association with later graft failure or composite endpoints that include rejection, uh, death sensor graft failure, and graft loss. And, um, and we also know that clinical rejection in a number of cohort studies has been associated with the development of donor antibody and then subsequent ABMR. And, um, and then there's other unmet issues that we'll talk about in the next paper about treatment of, of acute media, of cellular rejection in our success. So this study was a single center cohort study from the University of Manitoba, and their goals were to identify the prevalence of the first T-cell mediated rejection event the second event, the risk factors for rejection and correlating this to graft outcomes, including donor-specific antibody, de novo, death-centered graft loss, and all-cause graft loss. And their cohort included individuals from 2001 to 2019. That cutoff was used because that was when that center kind of um, consolidated the use of tacrolimus, mycophenol, mofetil, and corticosteroids with or without depletional induction, either basiliximab or rabbit ATG. And they ended up with 853 patients um, in, their red, in, their, in their database. Um, and figure two shows you the consort diagram uh, of how individuals were excluded. And so, uh, you know, there was a different use of surveillance biopsy by this hospital from 2001 to 06. They did biopsies as one, three, and six months. And having been practicing back then in the olden days, yes, some of us did that. And we found that the one in three months weren't really informative. 
Some use three and 12 months instead. So after 20, 2006, the center predominantly focused on six-month biopsies, and they had very specific definitions and consistencies of how they treated patients. So there's an advantage here that they took care of everybody kind of the same way. And figure one will show you the biopsy frequency. So not unexpectedly, there's a lot of biopsies done early, especially at that six-month time point, and then over time, those diminish and the clinical characteristics of the cohort are shown in table one. I think it's important to point out that nearly half of the recipients are recipients of a live donor kidney transplant and 62% are Caucasian. So you have to count that into your calculus when you're trying to understand what these findings mean. Overall, they had almost 1,700 biopsies the first episode of T-cell media rejection was almost 90%, 91% had T-cell media rejection. The remaining rejections were antibody-mediated injury. And of those TCMRs for the first episode, two-thirds were BAMF borderline category using the 2019 definition. Going back to the biopsies, about half were surveillance biopsies in this cohort. And they show a number of figures. They look at the types of rejections over time that are seen. So that's in figure four, where they look at the distribution of the severity of BAMF uh, rejections over time. You can see that borderline still is there, um, but uh, but the more robust cellular rejections based on BAMF are, are typically more early on. And interestingly, I think a key point here was that they re-biopsy patients. This was their practice between two and six months. And almost 50% of individuals had another follow-up biopsy. Note that only about 78% of patients actually came back. Um, and is and is you know sort of the tradition of this group. Um, they looked at uh, epilepsy mismatching in DQ and, and identified an association of more higher risk mismatches. Um, leading to the association with T-cell-mediated rejection. And then they do a number of hazard models. Um, uh, I thought what a clever one was they included delayed graph function and really showed a significant increase of delayed graph function in these models with dense sensor and all-cause graph failure. But importantly, that T-cell-mediated rejection was an independent predictor. Um, and they've included in sensitivity analyses, and this is in model two, which is one of their uh, table uh, three, I think. And they show this by sensitivity analysis, they look at the differences between for cause and surveillance biopsy, and that the T-cell media rejection second episode was also associated with poor graft outcome. BAMF borderline rejection correlates predominantly with death-censored graft loss, but not all-cause graft loss. And so... Um, I think the overall thing, if you can't remember anything that I said, is rejection, cellular rejection is bad news. And don't let anybody say that it isn't. And we don't think about it that way because we haven't really looked at data like this. And it's hard to do this in a registry because the, the inconsistency of reporting of cellular rejection, particularly after the first year. Um, the authors point out that why is this important? Well, maybe with the frequency of T-cell media rejection and, the, and, and its association with graft failure, that we need to be thinking about new agents for prophylaxis. So the standard triple combo that's been around for almost 25 years, it's time to start thinking about it a little bit differently. And maybe because these patients tended to have rejection episodes and follow-up, that maybe we need different treatments 
when a rejection episode occurs. So remember, most of us use corticosteroids plus minus ATG, Campath, if you're out there. And importantly, they talk about the impact of, of molecular mismatching. There was an accompanying editorial by Mike Mengel and Ilka Hilantera um, pointing out the small sample size, the risk of type 2 error, that only about 80% of patients had available histology, so they may have overlooked, they may have actually been underreporting bad news, um, and that the follow-up of the second biopsy was inconsistent um, across the group. So I think this is an important, um, probably highly will be a highly referenced manuscript paper that's coming out tomorrow and March 1st. So I would encourage the readership to go back in if they have overlooked it because you get the electronic coming on first. Uh, when you get your print edition, uh, please take a look. Any questions, Carol? Or are you just going to keep listening to me? It's okay. You can. So the second paper, again, by this group, I mean, all they do is sit around and think big thoughts. And it's like frustrating for someone like me that never seems to have a minute's piece is by Julie Ho, um, uh, again, in this group at uh, uh, at Winnipeg, uh, looking called the Infectiveness of T-Cell Media Rejection, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So here they did a very structured systematic analysis of the literature of T-Cell Media Rejection. And I'll summarize by saying they use sort of the methodological expectations that you would use like in a Cochrane analysis. And their goal of this study, and I don't know if they thought about this when they were doing the other study, but the goals here were really to look at the histological course of T-cell mediated rejection, including BAMF borderline over time and following you know, the effects of anti-rejection therapy. And then also looking at the impact of T-cell mediated rejection on outcomes. And I'll tell you that, that, that you know, parenthetically, I think when we got to this tacrolimus era, era, I think we all thought well, rejection's not a big deal. And I never see rejection. Well, I know I do see rejection. I mean, who's coming to clinic? It's, you know, usually the bad news. So, but it's nice to have data. So what uh, Dr. Ho did is, and her colleagues, they reviewed the literature from 2015 to January 2021, only English papers, and they limited it to 2015 because there really wasn't a whole lot of literature that was addressing this question. And the primary outcomes were persistent and recurrent T-cell media rejection, persistent um, defined as biopsy proven, uh, greater than or equal to BAM borderline on a subsequent biopsy after treatment, and recurrent was defined as a biopsy-proven BAMF greater than or equal to borderline on a follow-up biopsy. And you had to have an intervening normal biopsy to be called recurrent. So figure one um, shows sort of the flow chart of how they isolated these different studies. And I'll point out that in the end, they only had 12 studies. Shocking. I mean, there's, there's reasons because this was a very structured analytical technique and only 12 met the criteria, but uh, mixed in there were some duplicate citations and, and study populations, things that were lacking intervention, even though they came up in their search. And so I'll tell you that they actually provide all the details of each of these studies in their accompanying tables, uh, table one and table two. So you have an opportunity to really look at these um, in detail. Only two studies included children, Carol. So this is not going to be super informative about pediatrics, but I would say that kids seem to get things worse than, than adults in terms of rejection. And, you know, the use of surveillance biopsy, though controversial, is, is often more frequently in kids where the creatinine is even less helpful than it is in, in adults. Four studies um, included only BAMF greater than 1A, which means they excluded borderline. So again, there's some inconsistency. 
overall, the um, incidence of subclinical biopsy-proven rejection was 30% and clinical only 16% um, overall. And you would think that's really small, but um, the remaining figures, and, and most of the treatments were like corticosteroids, plus minus augmentation of immunosuppression. It was actually one study that included tocilizumab, anti-L6, receptor versus placebo. And there were definitely a heterogeneity of approaches, whether patients had subclinical, meaning clinic rejection found in a biopsy at the time of stable function versus clinical. The remaining figures from two to six look at the persistence of rejection in these studies, and there are different qualifiers. So when you look at the overall persistence of rejection for BAMP borderline, it's 0.39, which means 39% of patients have persistent at least BAMP borderline after the treatment of their index biopsy occurs. Figure five shows, for example, the highest persistence of rejection is when you consider BAMP borderline at a minimum and it was untreated. So um, interestingly, um, that doesn't sound like a very good thing to have. And maybe again, this kind of data, uh, this cumulative data kind of indicates why subclinical rejection, even at BAMP borderline is associated with poor outcomes. And I would say that um, figure seven, which is really the last of all their figures, uh, kind of highlights um, sort of the overall research summary outline of all these 10, 12 studies. So I would say that um, not every program does follow up biopsies. This is very inconsistent. So the standard of care is not clear. And it clearly, the, the standard of care for treatment is all over the place. And I am one guilty because sometimes I'll do... 250 of solumentrol and sometimes 500. And I know that the fellows and APPs are like playing, what is Dr. Mannon thinking? But some of it is just gestalt of how a patient is doing. Sometimes I'll see edema on the biopsy and know that that's bad news. And edema is not counted in the BAMP subscore. It's in the comment. So uh, in terms of, you know, what is the threshold for biopsy? And if the threshold is borderline, some places just don't follow that up. And so one study did. And so I think that the, the literature here shows this inconsistency. Biopsy practice is inconsistent and treatment is inconsistent. I think at the very least, this paper identifies a critical unmet need, which is the appropriate treatment for T-cell media ejection. And that kind of harkens to the previous paper that we talked about. And would it be possible to do a randomized control trial on a novel therapy and maybe like what is the actual standard of care? And you have to define that and, and accept it as that. And could we get people interested in doing that? And um, again, one way to do it is perhaps to enrich the population using high-risk patients, such as using the applet mismatch. And I guess that's a good commercial for Dr. Nickerson and Weeb's uh, work for the last five years. Uh, there was an accompanying editorial by myself and uh, Sindhu Shadron from UCSF. We talked about T-cell media rejection being an important endpoint. And, you know, again, I think our therapies aren't resolving inflammation as much as we think they are. And that's because we're looking at renal function, serum creatinine. You know, a heart transplant doctor would never do that. They'd be doing multiple biopsies. We don't have established proven biomarkers that can help us with this right now. So, I think we really, you know, also need to define the histologic criteria for remission. Is, is, is treatment success a reduction of a grade or complete resolution of inflammation? Some would say persistent inflammation is called accommodation, whatever that means. I mean, I was taught that in, you know, in my immunology courses, but I don't believe it. So in summary, we have two studies, I think, combined 
Uh, they identified, you know, the need for prospective studies, looking at treatments for T-cell media rejection. So all of you that have single centers and you've got all your data in a database, it would not be a bad idea to go back and look at it. I'm not saying we'll accept it, but I think it's worth you having an understanding of the norms of your institution, especially when you're a trainee and you, you'll go, you'll train one place and go to another and you're like, they do what? You'll, you'll be surprised. Um, you know, standardized assessments of treatment adequacy, what should those be? You know, we have to understand histological and clinical predictors of those people that will do poorly and to understand the quality of our responses. So I know this is a lot of information, and I would just say that we are so excited to announce that the American Journal of Transplant will be starting a new feature called the AJT Journal Club. Yes, folks, the first topic will be T-cell mediated rejection. And we're actually going to focus on these two papers. We've invited the authors to record a presentation, almost a journal club of their own, in a longer format that'll be recorded. And then we'll have two live panels, one in a time zone agreeable to us in North, South, and Europe, if you'd like to stay up late, Europeans. And then another that will be for the night owls and those of us that are in Asia, but we'll have the live panels uh, hosted by myself and some others to really sort of dig deeper into these issues. So uh, this will be coming soon, probably late March, early April. And depending on the success in your participation, we plan to do some other focused organ journal clubs over the next year. Super exciting, Roz. I know, and, and you've done a great job. So I don't know if you have any questions, but if not, it was great having you. And Carol, great to have you um, provide your input. I know that, you know, not being... Uh, necessarily the content expert is a challenge sometimes, but you did a great job. So thank you. All right. Thanks. It was a great experience. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 